with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. As always, thank you so much for checking in. Today, I have Professor Emilio Iodice, and he spent over three decades as a senior executive in the public and private sectors as an educator, and as a university administrator. Those 30 years of experience include being a key official in Washington, working for several administrations, reaching the top ranks of the civil service and the diplomatic corps. Uh, He remains among the most decorated officers in American history with a gold medal for heroism, a gold medal and silver medal for exemplary service, nominations for the bronze medal, and numerous commendations and citations. He served as a minister in key U.S. missions abroad, including Brasilia, Mexico City, Rome, Madrid, and Paris, and departed after being named to the list of future ambassadors. Among his honors are being knighted by the former King of Italy. He received medals of honor from Spain and Italy, And at age 33, he was named by the President of the United States to the prestigious Senior Executive Service as a charter member. He was the youngest career public official to reach this distinction. After the Foreign Service, he was named Vice President of Lucent Technologies in charge of operations in numerous countries and later taught full-time at Trinity College in Washington, D.C. There's a lot more. And we are going to put all of that information in the show notes for you. Links to his many, many books. He has been on the podcast before. But today, 
we are exploring uh, one of his latest works. Because if you know Emilio, you know that there are many works in progress. <laughs> There's a little Manfred Katz de Vries in, in Emilio. There's just always something happening. And, uh, you know, but today we're going to focus on his book on Mussolini, The Return of Mussolini. And so, Emilio, thank you so much for checking in from Rome. And I'm excited for the conversation. Now, maybe we start here. What are some themes that you kind of really explore in the book on Mussolini? And then how does that apply to our current times? Maybe we go there after that first little section. Does that sound like a good path for us to go down? Yes, it does. Great, great. So themes, themes from your work on, I mean, what struck you? What did you learn in this process about? He, he was a fascinating personality and uh, he was a man of uh, enormous charisma and detail. Uh, detail was everything for Mussolini, just like uh, it is for many dictators. Uh, and Mussolini uh, uh, understood how to control and disseminate messages. Mm. Uh, he was a master at it. And we're talking about the 1920s. We're talking about the silent film era. Yet Mussolini actually was able to write the first manual on modern dictatorship during that era and how to use a capillary system of uh, control, command, and fear to get into the lifeblood uh, of Italy and to actually transform the country during the 20 years that, uh, that he was uh, its leader. Fascinating character and one that actually is being imitated to some extent in the world today. Talk about control, command, and fear. Let's go down, let's go down that road for a little bit. First was uh, censorship. He uh, gradually uh, instituted a system of censorship that reached uh, into the homes of Italians. Uh, even their children became spies. Every single document that was printed or published in the country had to be filtered through the fascist party and in many times even fall into his hands. And, and part of his command was censoring ideas, censoring opposition. I just finished uh, looking at a very interesting book about Mussolini and censorship and his alliance with intellectuals at the time. He delved into the intellectual community of Italy and basically uh, uh, co-opted writers, artists, publishers, editors, and he brought them into the regime. He did it through persuasion, through coercion, and eventually using the tactics of a mafia leader. But uh, he, was, he was a master at this. He was a master at controlling communication from the top all the way to the bottom, all the way down to the school, and especially at, at the youngest ages. This is where Mussolini was building a generation, a generation that would follow him, follow him anywhere. He did it really following principles. Uh, what, what I uh, outline in my, in my book about Mussolini, which is also in an article about the startling rise of Mussolini to power, which was published in the Journal of Values-Based Leadership. He 
he lays out the basic principles of fascism, that he hid anything. He said he laid them out, he enumerated them, and then he implemented them. And they were copied, of course, by Hitler, and they were copied by many uh, uh, tyrants later on. And today in Russia, uh, we have a, a leader who basically is following many of the, uh, the same tactics and the strategies that Mussolini created a century ago. Well, one thing that I, I want to explore a little bit, genuinely just interested in your opinion, you know, you used a word in that last passage, you said gradually. I don't know that it's often that these people come out of the gates with some of these extreme tactics, extreme perspectives, extreme elements of control and command, uh, fear. It's a, it's a gradual process. And and so would you talk to that a little bit? Because when I think of Vladimir Putin, for instance, you know, it's been a gradual process of him really solidifying that power. Or Barbara Kellerman might say the same of uh, Xi Jinping in China, that it's been more of a gradual process of gathering power. How do you think about that? Yes. Uh, and in Mussolini's case, Mussolini had two major institutions that were bulwarks of uh, Italian history that, to some extent, uh, were uh, controlling factors. Even Hitler criticized him for allowing the Catholic Church to continue to exist in the country and allowing the monarchy to continue to exist because he said, these are breaks on your power. They uh, have an influence on your power. So Mussolini had to introduce his concepts and uh, uh, implement them relatively slowly. But uh, sometimes, as he would often say, it's better to be fortunate than competent. He was an opportunist. He was a, 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 a tremendous opportunist. And he could turn a great problem, a crucial crisis, into an opportunity. When uh, he and uh, the fascist killed uh, one of the deputies, one of the most popular deputies of the parliament, Matteotti, in 1924. Well, Mussolini, as prime minister, uh, declared a crisis, and he declared martial law. He, uh, instead of resigning, which would happen probably today, he even admitted responsibility, not that he said that he was behind it, but he took responsibility. He turned that in enormous problem, a crisis, into an opportunity to uh, coalesce his power, to control the media, and also to eliminate the political parties, and eventually uh, to establish a single party uh, regime. But he did it with the assistance of the monarchy. Uh, the king had to sign off on so many of these executive decrees and so many of the new laws. So the king gradually, was also taken in by Mussolini. And uh, the monarchy at that time, like most of the European monarchies, were frightened by Bolshevism. Communism really helped create Benito Mussolini, the fear of communism. Uh, the monarchy was deadly afraid of ending up like the Romanovs, that they would be uh, uh, assassinated and eliminated just like uh, the family of uh, Nicholas II. So 
Uh, Mussolini understood that. He understood the fear that the monarchy had of communism. The church had this enormous fear of atheistic communism. So he comes slowly within three years after assuming power as prime minister to dealing with the church. And eventually he uh, signs the Lateran Treaty with the church. Just like Mr. Putin, by the way, signed a treaty uh, with uh, his church uh, in order to smooth out relations with the government. So Mussolini eliminates the threat of the monarchy. He eliminates the threat uh, of the church, and he moves forward. In the States, there's a television show, and it's called Survivor. And it's been on for a couple decades now. I think they're, they're, they run two seasons a year, and I think there's probably 40-some seasons. And in, in this series, you know, you try and become the last person standing and, you know, you have to, in some cases, lie, cheat and steal. And some people try and play an ethical game and some people uh, use different strengths, a social game or, or their, their strength, physical strength. What's interesting is the host has this, has this saying that oftentimes you can find a crack and if you can find that crack and you can exploit that crack, you can work your way in to some of these institutions or some of these partnerships or collaborations in the game. And it sounds like this, in this instance, Mussolini, but also individuals like Putin or others are masterful at finding those cracks and using those as opportunities, regardless of how it aligns with their own personal beliefs, they use it as an opportunity to secure and solidify that power and then gradually increase the command, the control, the fear. What's interesting to me is it's, it's throughout history, it's over and over and over, right? It's humans being on some level. And it, it preys on our insecurities. Yep. And it preys on the, uh, on the, the constant normal crises that we go through, uh, that every, uh, every country, every economy faces. Democracy, of course, has its, uh, its weaknesses, and we know what they are. People that live in freedom also uh, live in insecurity. And people like Putin, just like Mussolini, uh, understand how to manipulate the thoughts of people who are living in insecurity. For instance, uh, the parallels to the 20s, to the early 20s, and now are much greater than, than we, we really believe. People had come through enormous conflicts. They had come through uh, economic decline. People were losing jobs. What, what we faced in, in Italy in the, uh, in the 20s, parliamentary monarchy, that was old, old uh, in terms of the actual age of the parliamentarians, uh, was also corrupt and inefficient. It was difficult to get any laws passed. Uh, and when they were passed, uh, they were implemented not well. Uh, and the people faced this. They, they suffered from it, even though most of the people at the time were illiterate. So Mussolini understood the weaknesses also of the parliament that he was dealing with. So one of his first speeches was where he referred to the the parliament as this hall that is gray and deaf. 
of gray men, and also most of them were probably hard of hearing. But uh, his point was that you've never heard the voice of the people. Not hearing the voice of the people makes you weak, corrupt, and indifferent. And Mussolini would often say, I am the people. I'm the voice, the image of the people. The people trust me, they know me, and I know them. And that was uh, his strength. And because the parliament was so weak, because the political parties were also weak and fighting among themselves, it was easy for him, easier for him to take control uh, than under normal times. Talk a little bit about this document that he produced that basically provided the roadmap. I've never seen it. I'd love to put a link to it in the show notes. But would you talk a little bit about that? Basically, you said that he just basically put out the blueprint as to what he was doing. Is that accurate? Yes. He wrote actually the Manifesto of Fascism. And in the Manifesto of Fascism, and this is an historic document, I I quote from it uh, in in the book. And and basically, it outlines the fascist state and how the fascist state will operate. First, it's basic principles, uh, the principles of a state governed by a dictatorship and the benefits of the dictatorship. You don't have opposition, you don't have to listen to anyone. And also how the state is everything, all consuming, and how the state will provide for the people, that the responsibility of the state is for the people. This almost sounds like communism, doesn't it? Yeah. But remember, Mussolini was a socialist. He believed in uh, left ideology to the extent that it provided something for the people. So during his regime, he puts in um, social welfare programs that the people had never seen before. Workmen's compensation, for instance. Pensions. People had never seen these things before as well. So he gave something back in the form of some social responsibility. And in the fascist manifesto, we talk about ideas, ideas about Italy, about the country itself, the people themselves, and how everything must fit together in a mosaic, uh, in a mosaic of one thought, one concept, one people. And that the, the fate of the people and the fate of the state are all intertwined. Hmm. Uh, it's fascinating to read his ideas. And of course, the extraction of this, the, uh, the follow-up to uh, uh, the concepts of fascism, basically go into those of the master race that Hitler adopted. And then basically Mussolini also adopted when he uh, uh, instituted the laws against uh, the Jews in thirty-eight. And most Italians felt it was just to appease Hitler. But I think he really believed these things as well. And uh, he uh, did his best to implement. What are a couple other insights that you made in the process of researching for this book? Anything else that you want listeners to, to be aware of so that they can investigate more when they pick up a copy of the book? But what were a couple other things? Well, uh, The thought processes of people during that era reflect so much of what's going on even today. Uh, And I see it here in Europe. 
I, uh, I listen to all the talk shows that I can, uh, especially the debates about this war. Now, uh, during the 30s in particular, uh, people uh, both in Italy, the United States and elsewhere were isolationists. I quote in the book what was happening in the UK during that time uh, about isolationism in the sense that millions of citizens would say, why should my country be involved in a foreign war? I'm sure there are Americans right now, and I know some of them that I've been speaking with that are saying, why should we get involved in what's going on in Europe? They dragged us into two world wars before. Now they'll drag us into another one. Hmm. That kind of thinking that kind of thinking existed then, it exists now. The talk shows here in Italy are divided among most people who are saying this war is being created by Americans, by foreigners, by others, by this. Why should we get involved? Let them do whatever they want to do. Versus those who understand that it's an enormous threat to democracy. And even in the 30s, we had those people who were shining lights in the darkness to say that, Hitler, Mussolini, were threatening our freedom. So we had it then, we have it now. So those are parallels that, are, uh, that occurred at that time. And I believe, as, as I know you do, that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but people repeat it. And they repeat it based on, again, the insecurities that we're all subject to. Yep. But the most important thing that we have to understand is the difference between liberty and dictatorship, and it's the word fear. And I've seen it. I've lived in dictatorships, and I've seen how fear can permeate everything, and you can live in fear as the people in Russia are living through right now. Talk a little bit more about fear and the power of fear. Again, you have Mussolini. You, you said something very powerful, that children were some of his strongest support mechanisms. Again, find a crack. And if you can find a child, there's potentially a crack. Again, in the book, I, I mention how Mussolini rewrote the textbooks. And the textbooks personify him in every single classroom in Italy. You would see not only a photo of him with the king, but you would see also a great poster of Mussolini. And on buildings all over the country, there were slogans, some of his, uh, his most interesting and most exciting slogans that would excite people. But the children, the children were regimented. They were um, given uniforms, and the uniforms made them feel special. They were given medals for doing important things. They lived a fascist life. It was a little bit like Hitler Youth, but... But the, uh, the Italian system was a little softer. Children had to devote themselves to fascism. Uh, it was called Fascist Saturday. They exercised regularly. And with the exercises, they also went through classes. And the classes were the Fascist Manifesto. Basically, what that meant was that this was loyalty to the state, loyalty to Il Duce. Il Duce was like a father. He was the father. He was responsible, he was trustworthy, and he was there for them all the time. And very interesting, Mussolini uh, understood images. His uh, office at 
Piazza Venezia, at night he would leave the light on all night long. People mm. would pass by and say, you see, he's up there still working and it's midnight. He understood Im imagery. He understood how people thought and what they needed. They needed work. So during the fascist era, the public works were incredible. But if you didn't join the fascist party and you were part of a major institution, you'd lose your job or you could lose your job or you had no future. Fear, fear. All of this was connected. It was all tied together all the time. And it became slowly part of life, part of everyday life, this fear factor. And it became uh, something that became normal. Uh, you didn't uh, violate the rules. You didn't speak against the regime. You didn't turn on a shortwave radio listening to the BBC. Why? Because it was disloyal. But also inside was this sense of fear. And it was everywhere. Everywhere you felt it as this great weight that became part of society. And we have to remember that Mussolini did everything that he said he would. He said, we have buried the corpse, the putrid corpse of liberty. And he assaulted democracy all the time. Wow. And the concept of freedom, constantly. Uh, he uh, hid nothing. His agenda was always open. Just like Mr. Putin, the agenda has always been open. It's been very clear. And he said exactly what he would do and when he would do it. And that's the same thing with Mussolini. He, he said what he would do and when he would do it. So what are some of your contemporary insights if we go to Putin now and we go to Ukraine and, and what's happening in Eastern Europe? What are some of your insights on that? Well, he's, uh, he's following Mussolini's playbook. Uh, the manual is, I'm sure, on his desk somewhere in one form or another. Mussolini uh, uh, took the country into wars, uh, one war after another, and he felt that was important in order to create an empire, create an image of an empire in the, the mind of every single Italian. Because Mussolini understood that he needed to maintain public support, even though there was no voting, but he needed public support. Well, Putin is the same thing. Putin has brought his country into one war after another. These are wars of conquest, and we know that. And now finally he's in the Ukraine. But if the democracies in the 30s had uh, stood up against Mussolini and Hitler, we had warnings because these dictators will constantly do the same thing. In order to achieve their goals, they have to go into wars. We've seen it again and again. Putin, in order to manifest his strength as a person and as a leader, he has to conquer others. And of course, his, uh, his image is the Soviet Union of the past. Mussolini's was the Roman Empire. Uh, Hitler, in fact, uh, used to talk about uh, Napoleon and Napoleon uniting Europe under one banner and under one uh, a currency and one set of laws. So Mr. Putin's parallels to Mussolini, as I wrote in a, a very recent article uh, about he may end up the same way that Mussolini did. Mussolini was a, ultimately a, 
assassinated by his own people and hung up in a square by his heels. Mr. Putin also may face justice in one form or another, lose power, and then uh, also uh, lose his life. Because he's sowing hatred, just like Mussolini ultimately did. And I, I think the parallels are there. I hope that this doesn't lead us to a third world war, but it probably will lead us into a controlled conventional conflict that will lead to the end of, uh, of Vladimir Putin. Well, it's a fascinating conversation, Emilio. I, it's part of the human condition, part of the human condition that we are susceptible to. I, I just finished, I'm, I'm using all kinds of contemporary examples on you, whether it's the TV show Survivor, <laughs> which was very left field, I'm sure, for you. I just finished a documentary on WeWork, and there's also a television show right now called We Crashed on Apple TV, but it's kind of chronicling and following those uh, the story of WeWork, and, or whether it's the Fire Festival, or just some some again contemporary examples of of charismatics individuals who take followers down a very tragic path and we've seen it in faith-based organizations we've seen it in corporations we've seen it in societies and i, I just continually reflect on what's the anecdote us being less susceptible especially when it's that gradual when it's that gradual approach, right? There's there's people in the world right now who that's just their existence. That's the world they're living in. And that's the regime under which they were born. In other instances, we have, again, faith-based organizations, corporations, where people are actively kind of in process of being brought into the fold gradually and great damage will be done. I agree. Uh, and Scott, uh, what we're really missing today uh, in our democracy in the United States, but I, I see it in Europe as well, is really good, strong, honest, ethical leadership. And that's the solution to our problems uh, in a democracy, uh, where we, we need to bring forward again the Abraham Lincolns. And that's not an ideal. Uh, the basic principles of Lincoln and the basic principles of other leaders that we've had in in our history are the kinds of people that we need to bring forward again. We need to free up our political system so that we allow people of quality, competence, honesty, integrity, and patriotism. To, uh, I think we have certain controls, and I know very few people ever discuss this, but certain controls on our democracy will make it very difficult for honest individuals uh, to want to participate in the political process. And I think we need to do that in the United States. We need to reevaluate how we're helping to groom leaders of the future. Mm. Uh, this is absolutely essential. We need to bring them in to the process. And we need to do work, every, work at the lowest level, from the schools, the elementary schools, all the way to the universities. We have to encourage this process. Well, definitely the system, the system right now is not emerging necessarily, at least in large quantities, uh, those individuals uh, of a more a balanced perspective 
who can collaborate and keep the larger vision of uh, country in mind. It, uh, there is a lot of infighting, a lot of bickering, and a lot of looking at uh, protecting our own versus prioritizing the whole and the benefit of the whole, which to your point makes us vulnerable. It clogs the process. It, people lose faith in the system. And that itself can prove a fertile ground for individuals to emerge and enact pretty toxic agendas. Absolutely. And uh, of course, we've seen it before in our society. We'll see it again in in the years to come. A well-educated population, people who are well-informed, have to uh, make choices in a democracy, and they have to be informed about it. That's why I wrote the book about the, the return of Mussolini. Uh, it's, it's extremely important for all of us to reflect, to think, and to understand that the lessons of the past are just as valid today as they were then. Well, and, and you had mentioned Lincoln, and I know that I, I, will, put a, I will put a link to to the, the article that you have posted on your website about Lincoln right now. But is that a, a future work in process? Are you writing about his leadership right now? I, I wrote a, a long article that will be published in the Journal of Values-Based Leadership Great. Uh, in the summer. Uh, and it's uh, uh, about the leadership of Lincoln and why it matters today to us. Lincoln is not really, for me, a distant model. Uh, he's, uh, for me, a leader that uh, has those qualities that we can all look up to that are the antithesis of a, of a dictator. And Mussolini and Lincoln are polar opposites, absolute polar opposites mm. uh, in the thought process and in the actions, completely opposite each other, where uh, uh, Lincoln trusted the people. Mussolini had no trust whatsoever in the people or their judgment. Uh, Lincoln believed in eliminating fear uh, as much as possible in governance. Mussolini, of course, felt that that was his strongest and most important tool. So you have these enormous polar opposites. And Lincoln leaves us a legacy of good governance, of ethical leadership, and humility, humility on the part of leaders. Mussolini, Hitler, and all dictators are enormously arrogant. This is a common denominator of the persona as well as the leader. Lincoln, completely humble, self-deprecating. And with that humility, he showed strength, enormous strength. He matters. It matters today. And it matters for us to, to think, to reflect. And not to say, as I've heard so many people say, a Lincoln today could never survive with social media the way it is and with the media today. I don't, I don't believe that. Hmm. I don't believe that. My daughter right now is, is learning the Gettysburg Address in our community on Memorial Day at the cemetery. One child in sixth grade reads the Gettysburg Address. So she's learning that right now and memorizing it. And yesterday, we spent some time on YouTube really exploring 
the meaning behind those words and the context in which those words were delivered. And it's just powerful. It's incredibly powerful. I was lucky to have a, a really fun conversation. I'll put, I'll put the conversation in the show notes with an expert on Lincoln. A few weeks ago, we posted that episode and I couldn't agree with you more. I think you have an individual who is the polar opposite of someone riding bareback, <laughs> shirtless <laughs> on a horse. <laughs> right? <laughs> you have an individual who, again, to that, to my earlier comment, who I think kept the larger perspective and the larger whole in sight and was a force for good, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. A force for good. Uh, and also had a vision for the future. Uh, I, I was rereading his uh, first Avesta Congress where basically said the future will look to us. Uh, he knew the importance of what was happening during his time and that the generations to come would look back, look back, look back to him, his leadership, and to that Congress and their leadership. Yep. Uh, and a, a leader has to have that in mind, that vision in mind, remembering yep. that there are generations ahead who will look back. Well, sir, I, I'm excited to read that article this summer. I think that will be a lot of fun to, to read your perspectives on Lincoln's leadership, especially juxtaposed with you know, some of the conversations we just had regarding Mussolini and put a link in the show notes to the episode with Jonathan White. Uh, he wrote a book called A House Built by Slaves, which again was just a fascinating conversation with someone who's very passionate about Abraham Lincoln and has extensively written on the topic. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to learn because uh, again, a force for good and an individual who could keep the larger perspective in mind as uh, as we navigated that very, very difficult time in our history. And as we close out, as we wind down for today, what are you consuming right now? What are you listening to or reading that's caught your attention in recent times, Emilio? Well, what I'm reading uh, uh, constantly is uh, uh, information about the war in Ukraine. We're in Rome. Uh, it's it's a, an important topic for us. But I'm uh, also uh, looking carefully at things about the Second World War. I just uh, launched a book uh, that's bestseller. In fact, it's a USA Today bestseller called Liberation. It's a novel about World War II based on true stories. And I'll be uh, publishing a new book called My Soldier, which is, a, again, a story about World War II, which I've been researching. And it's a true story about the love affair between a little girl and an American soldier on an island here in Italy. So I've been reading more about war, more about war and society. I'm sort of a reluctant reader, but I felt that it's, um, uh, it's necessary right now uh, to be looking at what happened then to try to understand what happens next. It's very important for us to try to visualize what will happen over the next few months and maybe the next few years. This situation, this 
tremendous catastrophe seeps into our lives. It's in our lives now, but it will be part and parcel of the way we live for many years and decades to come. Hmm. I have great respect for your curiosity, your productivity, but again, in search of that answer to the question of what happened before and how that informs what happens next and better understanding those dynamics and sharing those dynamics with the world. So uh, as you said, an informed and educated public is probably one of the best defenses against some of what we've discussed today. There's an awareness of what's happening. There's an awareness of the tactics being used. There's an awareness and an understanding that some of those tactics play to our basic instincts and emotions of fear and anger, and that that's not going to get us anywhere good. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's, I'm going to go back to another, con- this isn't a contemporary pop culture example, but the band Rush, a Canadian band, has a song called Witch Hunt. And it always had one of my favorite lyrics towards the end of the song. And it went like this. It, 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 it went quick to judge, quick to anger, slow to understand. Ignorance, fear, and prejudice walk hand in hand. And for a rock band, that's some pretty wise words. Yes, they should be chiseled in stone, by the way, and they should be a part of every textbook. Yeah. uh, Because uh, uh, that's exactly what happens. That's the fertile ground of tyranny right there, fertile ground of tyranny. Well, sir, until our next conversation, I appreciate the work that you do and thank you for your time today. And I will put a lot of resources into the show notes. So for listeners, you can learn more about Emilio's work by just clicking the links in the show notes. And uh, it's uh, an incredible, incredible library of resources on the topic of leadership. So thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Scott. Okay, so two things, maybe three. First, the obvious. Are we students of history? Do we have awareness of the dynamics that have played out before? I just finished Ray Dalio's Principles for the Changing World Order, and it's just a fascinating read. Add it to your summer list. Barbara Kellerman talks about the leader, the followers, and the context. I haven't come across something that does such a wonderful job of just trying to help us think about the context, the context we're in, but then the context that have led to civilizations rising and falling and that big cycle that he calls it. So are we students of history? And and Emilio is a student of history. You have an individual with an incredible career, public service, higher education, corporate, and he is curious And that, for me, is the practical wisdom. This is a gentleman who has an insatiable curiosity, and he is prolific in his writing and consistently, in an ongoing way, just learning and learning and learning. And again, the practical wisdom for me, as a leader, are you curious and have you systematized that learning so that you're taking your knowledge, skills, abilities to the next level? Emilio, thank you, sir, for joining me. 
so much appreciate your time, your wisdom, your storytelling. And for all of you, thanks for listening. I hope you are having a good summer or winter, depending where you are in the world. Be well, take care, and do good. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.